Well, I've got to say, first off, welcome. Okay, thanks for having me. For everyone, I've got uh, Dr. Stephen Furlich uh, from Texas A&M Commerce right now, uh, professor. I, you know, my wife was excited when, when she heard about this. She's like, good, maybe you'll learn something from his, uh, from his uh, dialogue. But uh, congrats. What, you know, I told you earlier, is, uh, one went to Texas A&M for my undergrad. Uh, I was a little older. I was an active duty Marine. And then my first job when I retired was actually the Texas A&M system with, uh, is Chancellor Sharp yeah, still yeah, there? Yeah, okay. yeah. It was, it was, it was, uh, it was a short stint. I think after three days, I, you know, my wife then was my fiance. I called oh. her and I said, Hey, th- six months, six months. And I already started looking for another, uh, another job. So I commend you. Um, Thanks. commerce is where, uh, it's North of Dallas. It's, mm-hmm. uh, used to be called, uh, East Texas state. So it's Northeast, uh, almost Oklahoma. That's okay. All right. 45 minutes North of Dallas. Beautiful, beautiful area. Yes. Love yes. It there. Green. Yes. Which a lot of people don't. Uh, equate when they think of uh, Texas. Texas necessarily, but so where is you've gotten into the biological, you know, influences on gender communication, which I think has just become so relevant given yes. everything from, you know, now you can select your gender uh, based off of, you know, however you, you feel. Um, but, you know, also I don't want to say an attack on, Tradition, I call it the paradoxical, paradoxical sort of decline of masculinity. And what, what, what drew you to this, uh, this arena? So to give a little background information about it is I've taught a gender communication class for the last eight years. And one of the things that I kept coming across over and over was that there was some communication differences between males and females. And the research and communication and a lot of the other types of disciplines as well always try to dismiss it as something do, uh, to do with social learning, society, the way that you're brought up in your family, schools, all those types of things. But the bell that rung off in my head was how can we keep seeing these same consistent uh, communication differences between males and females from early on, uh, childhood, throughout adulthood, it stays consistent. But yet, taking that a step further, these are people coming from different backgrounds, different societies, different families. So if you have what's the same consistent type of uh, variable within it, and that was biology that struck to me. So I looked for different uh, books I could use for my class that helped explain the biological differences between males and females, and there wasn't any. Because you had uh, decades of research coming uh, that was out usually about the 1990s, uh, Deborah Tannen comes to the top of my head, and she wrote a book in 1990 and pretty much said, yes, acknowledge there are some differences between males and females with the way they communicate, but 100%, for the most part, you can explain from society, the way you're brought up, we're brought up in two different cultures. So then I started to look at what are some biological explanations. So I looked at psychology, I looked at psychiatry, I looked at biology and neuroscience. And then from these other disciplines, I brought those ideas together to pinpoint brain structural differences and sex hormone differences that contribute to communication differences between males and females. And recently, there's been some in gender communication um, research that's been discredited. And that's in my chapter two of this book, where it's not as scientific as uh, rigorous research that they're producing. So I went to other fields, other disciplines that may be a bit more objective. And I love the title. It's a good title, okay. Sex Talk. Of course, naturally, people, it's going to catch your, uh, your eye. Let, let me step back. So okay. you, you, got, you went to Texas Tech. Yes. Uh, got your, your bachelor's in philosophy. Was that correct? Uh, no, it's psychology. Psychology. Thank you. And then my graduate degree in communication. In communication. And then PhD in uh, communication as well, with emphasis in classroom communication. And then, as I started doing more research um, as a junior faculty member at A&M mm-hmm. Commerce, mm-hmm. that's when I started doing more of the interpersonal type of uh, uh, communication research. When you chose to start up that class, gender mm-hmm. communication, were you told to do that, or were were you, were you at liberty to, to to create the class of your own volition? When I came into that university, um, it was just me and another faculty member in communication, and he wanted to take more of the lower level types of courses. So mm-hmm. he said, create these five or six different courses. And it's something that's always been in the back of my mind was somewhat of a uh, contradiction, I guess, to some degree, of we keep hearing all this research out here, 
but uh, what you see for the facts doesn't necessarily support it as well. So let's get into it because okay. I'm interested in this more from a standpoint of, you know, I've talked about leaders and the best leaders uh-huh. I've met did not have one communication style. What I mean by that is they had the ability to match as best as possible the communication style of who they were interacting with, especially within the SEAL teams, you've okay. got a range of personalities uh-huh. and it was almost like an art, a mastery. Uh-huh. Um, so from a perspective of all the leader, le- leaders listening in on this one, even for you know husbands, yeah. and this is men's journal, predominantly uh, a, a male demographic, let's educate them on the differences, not only for women, but for men. And what are those markers that you're seeing that you know cross cultural lines okay. uh, that, have, that, that have led to this book? Okay, just briefly to give a little background, um, the brain itself, so all communication starts in the brain. So you can't have communication without the brain. And now um, science has advanced far enough where you can analyze the human brain and with over 90% accuracy predict if it's male or female. So if all communication starts in the brain and you can predict if it's male or female with over 90% accuracy, you can see that there are structural differences between the male brain and the female brain. And it's also been um, identified in areas of communication itself. So when you say that, you're saying so... If we, 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 we take a woman and a man, uh-huh. split their heads open, there are structural differences to the brain. Yes. But I think you're also referring to how, you know, if somebody is formulating what they're going to say, certain parts of the brain are firing that are different between men and women. Yes. Is that accurate? Yes. And, and how, do, how do you, is that what, MRI scans, nodes, how are you? Uh, uh, FMRIs. FMRIs. Uh, yeah, where it fires up a lot of times. Yes. So at conception, everyone pretty much starts off on the same track, mm-hmm. which we usually think of as female. So if you do nothing make a girl. And then after about four months after conception, that's when you have the Y chromosome starts to produce more of the uh, male sex hormones, androgens mm-hmm. that you mm-hmm. think of as testosterone. And that's what creates the brain structural differences from um, uh, that after four months, and then it goes all the way up to age 30. So throughout your life, adult life, going into your adult life as well, these sex hormones, um, your, your brain, your human brain is very neuros- neuroplasticity. So it changes. And at that uh, beginning developmental stage, that's when it creates those uh, brain structural differences, those sex hormone differences after four months of age with the male sex hormones of the androgen testosterone, and then the female is producing the estrogen. The, you so accurate to say the brain is not totally formulated until roughly 30 years of age. Yes. Wow. I mean, especially with the, the current argument going on about, you know, let's say transgender transitions mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. Uh, 18 year olds. Mm-hmm. It's amazing to think that there's 12, still 12 years of, of development of the brain. Mm-hmm. And I, I know a lot of people are making the argument that, you know, 18 year olds are really not in a position to, to make that decision at that, mm-hmm. that, uh, that time, despite the law saying it. And then after reading my book, you should be able to identify yourself pretty um, straightforward what are five differences between the male brain and the female brain, and how does that contribute to communication differences in terms of your language differences, your perception, emotional differences, um, words that you use, interests that you have as well. And then with the communication language differences, you sort of uh, touched on that. I could go in more detail about that. Yeah, please. So one of the things that's been found uh, rather consistently for decades is that females from early on tend to be superior when it comes to nonverbal communication. So they understand other people, other people's nonverbal communication at a much more accurate level than what males do. There's been numerous studies done on it. Um, they've even done it where you have like a curtain and two people put their arms through the curtain, you hold hands, and they can identify the other person's emotional state more accurately than what the male can. So during social interactions, there are actual biological reasons that explain why females are superior when it comes to nonverbal communication, empathize with other people, understand uh, their, their behaviors. So, for example, um, and this is one of the things that I think science has already um, justified and is pretty much set in stone, that females have many more connections across both hemispheres with their brain 
And then males have more connections within each hemisphere of the brain. So during a conversation with females, uh, they can access different areas of the brain, engage in the conversation, while at the same time, they can analyze your nonverbal communication, your nonverbal behaviors. Whereas with us males, we're much more compartmentalized with our connections within each hemisphere. Mm -hmm. So we could do one or the other, but asking us to do both at the same time, we're just not equipped for it. Also, they have more uh, mirror neurons that are activated during so social interactions. And what these mirror neurons do is they look at someone else's nonverbal behaviors, and then they prepare your body to display those same types of nonverbal behaviors that you see someone else do. And when you prepare your body to display those same nonverbal behaviors, then you feel you take on that emotional state. You feel that same emotion as the other person because your body's prepared to do the same thing that the other person does as well. They even have, uh, females even have uh, higher levels of oxytocin, and this is a big contributor, during social interactions, that bonding chemical. So they feel more of a connection with the other person during the social interaction, and if you feel more of a bond with them, you're going to understand them more, and you're going to empathize with them more. And during social interactions, they have more of their overall brain that's activated, Whereas with males, when we communicate language-wise, uh, the left side is activated more, and then with emotion, the right side. So as you can see, we're much more compartmentalized. It, it's, it's funny how you bring up the word empathy. Because, yeah. I mean, that's yeah. sort of, in, in, as, as you're explaining a lot of this, I'm going you know, to go to the societal norms uh -huh. that we place on both men and women, that women are more empathetic in their communication. So that is why. Yeah, it's been found for decades, you know, that they are more empathetic, they understand, they identify other people's emotions much more so than what males do. And then again, previous research, gender communication, um, in the English discipline, even communication itself, always tried to explain it away with societal types of factors. But there's these biological, how can you argue, argue with these biological factors? It's, it, as you're explaining this, it, it, you know, Will, I'm thinking for professions, it's just yeah. like, oh, so women are better negotiators, or they can be if they're picking up on nonverbal cues, better lawyers picking up on body language than, than most males. In different roles, I would say, yes, they are superior because they can understand the other person much more so than what we're able to. So yeah. maybe picking a jury who's mm -hmm. empathetic to um, your clients or who isn't. That's genius. Genius. If my wife was here, she'd be reinforcing all of this, just shaking oh. her head like, this is why. This is why. And then conversational differences, mm -hmm. um, there are some reasons for that as well. So uh, with uh, females themselves, it's been found early on um, from an early age that girls are superior with language, uh, social abilities than what boys are. And, and boys are um, at a much higher rate diagnosed with language disorders and language disabilities. And um, there's uh, different reasons for that. One is uh, testosterone hinders language ability. And estrogen helps it. But then also with uh, females themselves, they have uh, larger areas in the brain, such as Brodmann's area 44 and 45. Um, and that's responsible for ver verbal fluency, verbal memory. So that particular area. And they have a larger and more active hippocampus. And that's a major contributing factor. And the hippocampus uh, plays a major role in memory. Mm -hmm. So they have a better conversational memory, episodic memory during conversations. Maybe your wife uh, reminds you of things that was said that you probably uh, don't remember nearly as well. That misspelling, uh, <laughs> uh, her, her general vocabulary is, yeah. is much higher than mine. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, and then also that um, uh, they have more blood flow to different areas of the brain. They're responsible for emotion, creating words, connecting the words. And again, with uh, males themselves, during the language or during social interactions, the left side is activated for language and the mm -hmm. right side for emotion. So again, it's much more, the bottom line is, uh, it's much more difficult for males to tie in the current conversation with emotion. Two different sides are activated two different times and past memories as well. Um, because the hippocampus is responsible for that. So with females, when they engage in a conversation, they could talk about the, con the uh, topic at hand. They could tie in emotion and pass memories all together. And us males, we need to take into account that this makes sense to her, tying all these things together. And she's not personally attacking us or getting off track or just um, uh, rambling, but that's what makes sense to her. And she needs to understand when we're engaged in a conversation, if we only say a few words or just address the topic itself, it doesn't mean that we're emotionally removed. It's just more difficult for us to do conversation and emotion at the same time and tie in the memory as well. Oh, this is explaining so much. I mean, <laughs> wow. uh, 
So I see next you have a motion. Is that? Uh, yes, on the bottom of my uh, page. So one of the things that uh, has been found for decades, I'm guessing, uh, is that females are diagnosed at a much higher rate with depression than what males are. And again, it's uh, in the communication research and your uh, research as well. It's usually tried to be explained that maybe they're more likely to go to the therapy. That's why they're higher, uh, higher um, depression. But there's biological reasons for that as well. This is something that shocked me when I was doing the research. Um, I sort of had it in the back of my mind as a psychology major, but then it sort of uh, made it more, much more concrete that the serotonin system, and serotonin is used to help uh, balance emotions, balance moods, um, make you a bit happier, fight depression, things like that. It's been recognized now for over 40 years in science that the serotonin system is sexually dimorphic between males and females. It's, it's, it's been identified that the way that it functions is differently between males and females and plays a major role in uh, emotional regulation and things like that. So there's some research out there and um, not nearly as much as maybe what there should be or could be, but um, that males themselves have higher levels and have more access to serotonin and higher levels in their brain than what mm -hmm. females do. And that um, testosterone is even used to treat depression. And adult males have 20 times as much uh, testosterone as what adult females do. So you can see that as being a contributing factor because what testosterone does a lot of times is converted into serotonin, mm -hmm. which helps to balance mm -hmm. and regulate emotions and things like that. And there's even been some research out there that's traced anxiety and depression to the X chromosome. And with having two X chromosomes and another person having Y, you see all these uh, pieces of the puzzle come together. And if you're still not convinced after that, I don't know why you wouldn't be. No, just kidding. <laughs> that, taking it aside, not even consciously, when uh, male and female are looking at uh, subliminal negative faces, there's much more activation, uh, brain activation for females when they see a negative subliminal face than what it is for males. So it's a much more social interaction or a much more emotional intense type of experience for females even when they're not even aware of it, looking at just a subliminal negative face, they're going to have much more activation in their brain in the emotional areas than what males are. So if you put all these pieces of the puzzle together, serotonin uh, system differences, X chromosome for depression, anxiety, on a subconscious level, um, conversations and social interactions are much more intense for females. You can see why that they're more prone to it. And it's even been found that in major hormonal shifts in females, um, depression increases. Yes. Yes. Okay. Have, has have the stats on depression for men and women held pretty steady? Yes. Over the years, the decades. Yes. Okay. yes. It's it always seems like it's always consistent that females are diagnosed with depression much more at a higher males. rate. Yes. But but that's also due to the fact that they're more apt or willing to go seek help than men. Does that maybe contribute? Why can't it be both? You know. Yeah. True. That maybe uh, they are more likely to do it, perhaps, but maybe they are also experiencing it more as well, and that's why they're seeking it out much more so than what males are. Let, let me ask you this. Um, from, from your studies, I mean, uh, your control groups must include young children all the way to grown adults. Is it uh, various studies at various ages. Um, a lot of times they focus in on one demographics. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But what I try to do is synthesize together a bunch of different articles together with, and see these consistent themes. Outside of the biological differences, what role does environment or society play into communication for men and women? And let, me, let me sort of nuance that. If I am a young boy who grows up in a house uh, of, you know, the father's removed, a mom and my three sisters... Mm -hmm. Does that impact the way I communicate? Do I evolve, or, or I don't know if that's the right word, do I start to assimilate with, uh, with certain, again, biological differences mm -hmm. in terms of how women communicate? That's a good question. I always look at it on a continuum, and you have a continuum with two different ends, not to be extreme, not to use hyperbole or over-exaggerate, yeah. but there are differences is on this continuum, however large you want to make that continuum, with females on one side, males on the other side. You can move on that continuum uh, closer or farther away from each other, but I haven't seen anything consistent research that's, you know, credible, scientific, that flips them. 
that had shown that there is an ability to flip um, with the male on average being more empathetic and a female, you get in this if you want, with uh, better spatial ability. I've never seen that. So again, I don't want to make this, right now it's a hot topic and uh-huh. it's not a good topic to hit, but with transgender, uh, you know, with the, with the transition, a man moves to identifying as a transgender uh, female, you can still pick up the differences of whether it's a male or female based off the brain. Yes, you can still pick up the brain differences. Um, there's also a uh, pretty reliable indicator, I would say. It's called a 2D, 4D ratio. Mm-hmm. And your uh, finger that you point with um, versus your ring finger, that your ring finger, if that's longer than the finger that you point with, then you are exposed early on with higher levels of androgens, male sex hormones, testosterone, and then there's a bunch of associations with that. And then vice versa, if your uh, finger that you point with, your index finger, is longer than what your uh, ring finger is, then it's higher levels of estrogen. So how do you change that? And how do you change the brain structure? And Will, are you, are you slowly putting the oh, hand out? Like, yeah. <laughs> so you look at the inside of your hand, your palm, mm-hmm. and you go by the ridges, and then you measure each one independently. Okay. And if the index finger is longer... Then that's estrogen, and that's what females usually have. And if it's the ring finger, then that's male, and that's usually testosterone. Okay. Yeah, I'm, 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 listeners are going to probably be breaking out rulers here. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, let, let me ask you this. Given the advent of identity politics and, and mm-hmm. transgender politics, have you gotten any resistance on the campus uh, yes, to some degree. So this class I taught as an undergraduate class, mm-hmm. and then I also proposed it as a graduate class, and then there was, uh, in the faculty meeting itself, there was uh, disagreement with it, and I wasn't allowed to move forward with it as a graduate class. That makes no sense to me. If you could teach it undergraduate level, mm-hmm. why couldn't you have a more engaging conversation at the graduate level? That would make sense. Interesting. I, I, we'll come back to, 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 to politics on the, on the campus, and I don't want to make that the mainstay, but I am interested mm-hmm. from your perspective, and I don't want to put you in hot water either, uh-huh. just a, a sort of a, a subjective view of what's going on on campuses because I know that's a big concern. Uh-huh. But I, I, you've got me intrigued more so than most guests. I'll let you rent. Just okay. keep going. So one of the things that uh, I touched on just briefly was – Um, that there are social behavioral differences between males and females. And these have been found early on. And um, from an early age, boys uh, do certain types of play behaviors are different from girls. And again, we've always been told uh, for decades that's because that's the way that they're brought up. But this is what's been relatively new. And I think relatively uh, reliable breakthrough is based on sex hormone levels. So prior to birth, sex hormone levels can predict certain types of language behavior, uh, certain types of play behavior, other things as well. So higher levels of androgen or testosterone, the male typical uh, sex hormone, has been associated with those male typical types of play behavior, such as the more aggressive, playing with the ball, uh, the rough types of behavior. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. testosterone is also linked with better spatial ability. So you may be saying, well, um, males uh, have higher levels of testosterone, and they do those types of play behaviors as well. So how can you know that's it? Well, there is a condition out there. Uh, the acronym is CAH, and there's one in, roughly 1 in 10,000 girls who are born with this, and it's higher levels of androgens, male sex hormones. And what they found was that the girls that are born with the CAH um, have more typical types of play behavior associated with boys than what the average girl does. And it's even been found that they have better spatial ability, such as what boys do as well. Mm-hmm. So tracking objects, uh, directions, um, hand and eye uh, coordination. And they also found out with the uh, girls that have these higher levels of the androgens that they're born with, that they tend to go in more uh, male typical types of careers as well. So no what, kidding. What we call tomboys. Yes. Sometimes. Yes. You said one in 10,000. Yes, are born with that. But you see the same consistency as the sex hormone and not necessarily um, the way that they're brought up. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that uh, most people probably relate to, and it's used in comedy or whatever else, is directions. And males and females, men and women driving in the same car, this, that, and the other. 
It's been consistently found that males are superior study after study with cardinal directions, north, south, east, and west, and that's highly related or highly linked with testosterone levels that help spatial ability, whereas estrogen actually hinders or hurts spatial ability. You're kidding me. No. So the ability to simply say we're standing here, which way is north? Yes. I would think that's learned. Uh, well, the ability to actually, okay, you can think of it this way, and this is a good point as well. With sex hormones, you can think of that as maybe like the oral in the engine, mm -hmm. and it helps it function. Mm -hmm. So if you have one type of oral in one engine and a different type of oral in another, it's going to uh, help or hurt those particular areas for those particular functions differently. So, you know, I've seen some, some women in the military that are great orient, or what's the word, orient, orienteers, I think. Um, okay especially pilots, okay. where they can be like, nope, north, south, way, south, uh -huh. southwest. Uh -huh. Is that something that can be overcome despite the biological differences where women... You can improve to some degree, but mm -hmm. I venture to guess that probably most of them probably, probably maybe have higher levels of uh, testosterone than what the average uh, woman. woman does. Woman. And then maybe you, uh, I'll have your insight on this. So when you and your wife are talking about directions, driving, or whatever, and if you use cardinal directions, she's comfortable with landmark. And uh, women do just as well as what males do with landmark directions. Where are those physical types of things, a building, mm -hmm. a tree, mm -hmm. a pond, or whatever else? That's what they're comfortable with. Um, and we could do both or the other, but the testosterone helps us, and estrogen actually hinders them with those cardinal directions. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not saying you're, you're not wrong when it comes to my wife. Yeah, uh, with cardinal directions. Yeah. No, but she, she also never had a map and compass. Mm -hmm. you know, that was never her thing, but interesting. That's interesting. Uh, one more thing with, uh, we talked a little bit about uh, conversational differences. And um, one of the things that uh, I, I think that uh, the bottom line is that we need to understand from the other person's perspective in terms of um, what's their abilities, where are they coming from. So there is a relatively um, well-founded type of phenomenon out there when it comes to gender uh, communication differences. And probably most people can relate to seeing this uh, play out in real life, such as with the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, what was going on. <laughs> and the title of this particular, well, title of my chapter, and of this particular phenomenon is She Demands and He Withdraws. So there's a conflict dynamic that tends to go on in a lot of relationships where um, both, per, both people uh, feel like they're not having their uh, particular needs met, and it's for different uh, types of reasons. So she demands more out of the relationship because he doesn't, uh, for males, it's much uh, more difficult for us to process emotional type of uh, uh, communication in relationships. We're just not as uh, equipped to it because estrogen helps it, testosterone uh, hinders it. And then also, as we already talked about from early on, we have inferior language abilities. So she's anticipating for him to self-disclose and to be emotionally available is what she is. He's going to disappoint her each time. And then she's going to feel like I'm emotionally invested in this relationship, and he's not, so she's going to demand more from it. And he's going to feel that what he does is not being valued from her because that's the way that he contributes to the relationship through doing certain types of actions as opposed to what he says language-wise. So there's a few things that, um, and that's what even came out in the Amber Heard and uh, Johnny Depp trial is, she says every time there's a conflict that comes up, you just get up and leave, Johnny, and you just uh, withdraw from the relationship, and that's what this is itself. And we saw how that turned out after the birthday party and this, that, and the other. Um, she demanded more from him and show, showed her uh, distrust. I, I think we need dislike. to break down uh, Jason Momoa's testimony. That was that was interesting in itself. That was comedic. It, but what, what you're saying, though, with I mean, it could not be more spot on. And you know, we joke about these societal, you know, women engage, mm -hmm. men withdraw. It's true. Mm -hmm. it, it, I mean, I, in in often, you know, I, I've heard my wife say it's sometimes you're emotionally unavailable. Mm -hmm. I mean, how often do we say that? Do, do men say that to women? Just in my experience alone. And that could be for a number of reasons. It could be either because of uh, language, ability differences, or I even have a, a chapter in uh, my book called The Man Trance. And because we're much more compartmentalized, we could focus in on one thing at a time. So if we're trying to relax or whatever, that's probably one of the last times that we want to start in on a deep conversation. That whatever it is that we're doing, that's what we want to uh, 
um, focus in on. So if there's a conflict or something that needs to be brought yeah. up, the problem is for her, everything is much more connected. So her brain's much more interconnected. It's a much more uh, um, intense uh, emotional experience. So she needs to get rid of this much sooner than what he does. He's in the moment much more so. And um, during like the resting state, even his functional resting uh, connectivity and brain activation is less than what hers is resting. Mm -hmm. Whereas with him, he could go back to it later and she needs to resolve or it just keeps building and building. So what the best thing probably to do is to say, this is a problem that we need to address. When do you want to do it and set up a time to do it? And speaking about conflict and that demand withdrawal, there's two things uh, that could be done. One is they found out that uh, touch prior to conflict to your conflict conversation, maybe holding hands or whatever, that increases the oxytocin levels between both people. So that bonding chemical increases. So you empathize, understand the other person much more so. And then secondly, uh, mimic behaviors. What mimic behaviors do is activate similar areas of the brain. So when you display the same types of nonverbal behaviors, and it also uh, increases the oxytocin levels as well. So if you activate similar areas of the brain by doing the same nonverbal behaviors, you understand and take on the emotional state of the other person, and you empathize with them much more so. I'm going to use that one next time. Touch. Interesting. So maybe, and just throwing this out here, next time you go to some sort of social gathering, there's couples around, who's in a healthy relationship, who's not, look at their mimic behaviors. Who are mimicking positive behaviors of their partner is probably in a much more positive uh, relationship. And those who are not uh, in sync with each other, um, non-verbally with their behaviors, even maybe their blink rate, their breathing rate, or whatever else, uh, maybe their relationship isn't going nearly as well. That could be with anything. That could be relationships. It could be friendships, coworkers, whatever else. How often does someone take on your nonverbal behaviors uh, indicates how much they empathize and maybe uh, like you, and then how much is it different um, or how much do you take on someone else's as well? So it's kind of a barometer of relationship quality, mimic behavior. And your first book was Nonverbal Epiphany, uh, Steps to Improve Your Nonverbal Communication. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you this. Having traveled the world in all your studies, does nonverbal communication cross societal and cultural barriers? So one of the things that I think best explains it is that there's a lot of consistency in nonverbal behaviors, but then culture influences how we display those mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. uh, the variations to it. So everyone has different personal di you know, distance. Everybody knows about that based upon different cultures. And... Off the top of my head, um, I think it's like um, oh, 16 centimeters, something to that, that if it uh, violates 16 centimeters, the personal space of the other person, that's when it starts to get uncomfortable. So you have some uh, um, uh, flexibility with it. But then everyone, and this is consistent across all cultures, it's biological, it's universal, mm -hmm. experiences the same, and there's different numbers, five to seven basic emotions. So everyone, the happy, the fear, the contempt, sadness, um, you know, five to seven of them. But de depending upon your culture, how are you going to display it? So everyone's yes. going to experience the same, but then it's going to alter to some degree in terms of if you're an individualistic type of culture, then you're probably a bit more um, expressive in your uh, nonverbal behaviors. Whereas if you're in more uh, collectivistic culture, maybe the Far East or whatever, mm -hmm. then you're a bit mm -hmm. more reserved with your emotional because that's the culture itself, but you're still experiencing the same emotion. Yeah, that makes sense. How about uh, regionally within the United States? Have you seen differences in nonverbal communication versus somebody, let's say on the West Coast, Seattle versus somebody uh, in the Northeast? Yeah, uh, with the Northeast, I've experienced a, n a number of them. Uh, my dad's friend is from the Northeast. We have a person at the university from the Northeast. Mm -hmm. And the vocal tone is much louder. Uh, the personal space a lot of times is much closer. And there tends to be a lot more animation and gestures and things like that as well. So everyone does it. But there's a slight... Um, all, you know, how much it varies based upon culture itself, even within the U.S., probably even within Texas as well. Yes. West Texas from maybe east or south or mm -hmm. Dallas from West Texas is probably vastly different as well. How funny. You just basically described the first one as like a New Yorker or somebody from New Jersey mm -hmm. is what we always typically thought, you know, in California. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So a few other things that... Uh, 
my uh, favorite chapter of the book, and this sort of ties into it. Uh, what we've been talking about is um, it's chapter 12, Women's Sixth Sense. And it's been found consistently throughout research that women are superior in all five senses, and it gives them some sort of magical powers to uh, mind read. So they're better with touch, um, more sensitive to it. Mm -hmm. um, taste, more sensitive to it. Smell, more sensitive to it. Estrogen is highly correlated with hearing ability, so they can hear a wider range of sounds um, as their estrogen are at higher levels. And then when menopause kicks in, then their hearing ability starts to decrease as well. And then sight is uh, one thing that I find very interesting, that uh, color vision is on the X chromosome. So that's why you see much more so probably uh, all males uh, or all people who are colorblind are usually males um, because the color vision is on the X chromosome. So if you have two X chromosomes, that helps to overcompensate that. Um, so women can see a much wider and a much greater uh, spectrum of different colors, different shades. And they can communicate that because they have a better vocabulary with colors as well. And then they have more P cells in the retina as well. And the P cells are used for uh, color and detail. Mm -hmm. So they could pick up on color changes in people's faces and detail, subtle types of changes in people's faces as well. That gives them the ability to empathize much better. And they have a larger, more active insula. And what that is, is a part of the brain that takes in the sensory information itself. So I'm looking at uh, maybe your nonverbal behaviors, maybe the changes in your uh, colors in your face, uh, maybe even uh, some subconscious um, smells as well. And then I process all that to make sense of uh, what's this other person's emotional state, what's their intention. So this probably came about from bio uh, biologically from um, our ancestors, where the woman stayed back at the cave and raised the baby, mm -hmm. and the woman that didn't have very good nonverbal understanding of the baby, their genetics didn't pass on because their baby didn't survive because they didn't know what the baby needed. Was it hungry? Was it sick? Was it sad? And then what we already talked about with males having a superior uh, um, uh, spatial ability and cardinal directions, the male went out outside the cave, ran around, chased around all these different things to bring back the resources back to the cave. And if they ran around and couldn't find their way back, their uh, genetics didn't get passed on. Those who had the superior uh, spatial ability, theirs did. Break this down into scenarios okay. for me, w women versus men. Okay. Women are more equipped to do this, sort of the, the pros of what makes them better communicators Okay. Uh, in, in contrast to men and vice versa. Okay, so for women, uh, empathy, they can empathize mm -hmm. and understand people much, uh, much better. And where we talked about the biological reasons why, having a uh, better ability uh, through the different senses, mirror neurons, and the relationship itself, it's much more intense, increasing their oxytocin level to them, and it's a much more intense uh, experience. So they empathize better with other people, and they, can, they have a better equipped system to express themselves through language and what males do as well. So they can um, tie in more details and emotion and past experience much better. And for males, uh, we tend to be a bit, uh, a bit better when it comes to um, spatial ability, where we talked about, object rotation, hand-eye coordination. Mm -hmm. So that's a big thing in sports and the trans uh, you know, transgender uh, issue with that as well. And we tend to be a bit more focused as well because we're much more compartmentalized. So stay on one particular task and not letting these other things um, bleed over as well. How come men are, again, I was about to put out a blanket statement uh -huh. uh, when, I, when I can't walk back. Why does it seem that men are better, better storytellers? I'm, I'm just trying to think of, of who in the public I see, and it's usually traditionally men that are, are sort of the, uh, the storytellers. Does that come down to a biological difference? I would guess maybe that um, it's a bit more concise with the story mm -hmm. itself and not as much going in a different direction, so maybe it's easier to follow. That would just okay. be my guess. It, it, you just have thinking comedy, usually. I guess uh -huh. me, I also most of the people I follow are male comedians, uh -huh. and, and they, they deliver. But from everything you're describing, it sounds like women really are at an advantage when it comes to communication, both nonverbal and verbal. I would say, and this is sort of my opinion, but it's all backed up with research as well, mm -hmm. that they're superior social creatures. And there's just no way around it. Is that, that's also that motherly nature. I mean, even in our mm -hmm. household, it was, you know, dad was the disciplinarian. Uh -huh. Mom was the, what we called our emotional rock. Absolutely. I mean, she was, our, she was our foundation in a lot of ways. And yeah. she probably identified and brought up issues that the father was not even aware of 
you know, what's wrong with uh, little Johnny or whatever going on? And he's like, I didn't notice anything. And <laughs> just, yeah, and better dealing with it uh-huh. to where to, to, to strike a common ground with the person and empathize. And they're much better just walking into a room of people and getting a sense of the room and the emotional state of the room and the emotional state of each person as well. Whereas we're much better at finding the exit. There's an exit. exit. (laughs) There's a threat. There's a threat. Yeah. Uh, I I can empathize with that. Uh, How about the dynamics of a group or a tribe when men get around other men? It seems like the the communication style changes. Mm Mm-hmm. Is that, is that because, again, they're biologically, they, they, they understand that there's, there's more commonality now? I would think so. So they just uh, probably try to communicate more effectively to what their audience is. Mm-hmm. And that's what their natural ability is. And they don't have to veer off. So they just do whatever comes naturally to them. With, and communication has been identified for decades. It's called report talk. And what males do is we just report what's going on and don't nearly instill as much of the emotion and uh, the background memories to it in the relationship as well. Whereas women do much more of the rapport talk and building the rapport, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. relationship with other people as well. Yeah, I, I don't know how often I, or I pretty often say, hey, beginning, middle, end, get to the point, dude, is uh-huh. when, when talking with men. Of course, I've never, never say that to my wife. One of the things that uh, has been found out there and is relatively interesting, I think, is uh, pregnancy and the different dynamics that go along with that as well. So it's not a lot of studies out there, but there's a few, and because it's just so difficult for various reasons and it's costly, whatever. But uh, first-time mothers, when they're pregnant, their brain volume actually decreases by up to 8%. And what that is, it changes. So their brain actually physically changes to better accommodate the baby within them and understand what the needs are within the baby. And they uh, measured again up to two years later and found out that it didn't go back to what their uh, size was prior to the pregnancy itself. That still decreased up to 8% of what their brain was prior to the pregnancy itself. So what it does, it helps to uh, bring together and unify the baby and the mother on the same type of um, understanding between them. So the volume of the brain decreases... Yes, during the pregnancy. With the intent of? Uh, Changing to understand what does the baby need, um, what are, how can I understand the communication of the baby much better? And it does not regain that volume post-pregnancy? As what they measured up to two years later, it still stayed the same. So maybe if it's 10 years later or 15, we don't know because it hasn't been studied that, but up to two years, highly unlikely. How about second, third? Fourth pregnancies, does it? Does uh, it they, they haven't. Uh, uh, We've gotten there yet? Yeah. I, I haven't uh, seen any research that's looked at those, but what they found with the first-time mother. So if you have third or fourth pregnancy, you're a first-time mother to begin with, and you went through that brain change, and your brain probably hasn't changed, at least after several years. So it's always changing, and that's what men need to understand is during the pregnancy process, is she's going through these different changes, not just hormonally, but brain functionally as well, and her focus is more on the baby itself, and she's not going to be able to spend as much attention and as much energy on you in the relationship as what she did before the pregnancy. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. don't have some sort of animosity why she ignoring me well that's what she's biologically trained to do is to focus much more so on uh the baby within her does that eight percent volume reduction lead to a degradation of other skills prior to the pregnancy in terms of communication brain i would say probably um that it takes away from certain types of things because mm-hmm. you're moving it towards more of the baby but mm-hmm. um again there's not enough research out there to be as precise as what i would like that's fascinating it's, yeah, we often lose sight as men of what women go through to bear children. I, I would never wish that on anyone. It's, I mean, that is, to watch your body change like that and knowing that your brain produces volume 8%, that's In the my hat's off to the women of the world. And uh, if she's uh, pregnant with a the male, then her testosterone levels change and increase themselves for her, having a, a male. So it's... What I've heard, it's much more difficult for a mother to be pregnant with a male than it is for a female. And in, in, does the testosterone lower post-pregnancy? Uh, eventually. eventually. Uh, one of the things also, just to throw this out here, there's different debates out there, hot topic uh, mm-hmm. issues, that there was a study done. 
and had pregnant women. And they shined three dots on the woman's uh, belly. And if there were random three dots, the baby did nothing. If there were three dots that looked like two eyes and a mouth and resembled a face, the baby actually turned to look at those three dots um, that were the lights on the woman's uh, uh, belly. So it's indicating that there is some sort of cognition and awareness and mental ability of fetuses prior to birth that they can understand to some degree and they have that natural need for connection with other people and relationships as well. That's, that's amazing. So it's, it's not just a lump of cells. It's mm-hmm. not just mm-hmm. um, something that's there that's not a human. You have these cognitions going on within if you can actually uh, differentiate what looks like a face and what doesn't. At what stage of the pregnancy, how many weeks in, it would, did that start to become a repetitive pattern? Uh, I'm not sure off the top of my head. Uh, off the top. Yeah. But it is cited in my book, so if anybody wants to look at that reference and go to the uh, It's got that, the data. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah absolutely. Oh, having written books, people will be like, on page 18, you, I'm like, I, I don't know what's on page 18. I, yeah. <laughs> like, I, I forgot. Read it to me. Wow. Um, something else that's interesting to me and something you sort of brought up yeah. um, is what's going on when we change uh, sex hormone levels artificially. And one of the things that's uh, been around for a while is epigenetics. Mm-hmm. And the experiences that we do today influences um, how our DNA is expressed um, at conception. And it's up to maybe three or four months prior to conception. What we do today, our experiences, maybe our diet, exercise, or whatever else, sex hormone changes, can influence when we pass our DNA at conception three or four months later, how that DNA is expressed in that offspring later on, such as maybe obesity, um, other types of uh, evolutionary effects is that as well. So we don't know what some of these long-term effects are of changing sex hormone levels artificially and what that does to DNA expression and what's that going to do to our population DNA genetic pool itself. It's too early, so we all know. So you're talking testosterone, replacement therapy, again, transgender, mm-hmm. reducing, mm-hmm. Est- you know, reducing testosterone, increasing uh, estrogen. We, we, we just... The studies have not been around long enough to determine the ultimate effects yes. on one generation, two generations. Yes, line. yes. And what's that going to do? I mean, if simple things as a diet. Is there, it, let me ask you this. Yes. Is there a general belief of what it's going to do? There has been some findings um, such as artificially increasing testosterone levels um, going from female to male mm-hmm. to much higher levels. And it's actually been found to decrease uh, gray matter in the Broca's area of the brain. And that's responsible for uh, language ability. And then it's also been found to, if you artificially decrease testosterone levels um, to a large degree, and sometimes it's necessary if some, if some uh, male's going through prostate cancer or whatever mm-hmm. else, so mm-hmm. you drop the testosterone levels a lot, that uh, hinders spatial ability. So some of the same things that we see um, naturally occurring just gets exacerbated. So we already talked about how females are superior with language ability and uh, the Broca's area, and we talked about how testosterone hinders language ability. Well, you see that play out with this uh, transition from uh, female to male, increasing the testosterone levels to high degrees artificially actually decreases the uh, gray matter in the Broca's area of the brain that's responsible for language itself. So it gives us insight into why maybe uh, males are inferior language-wise due to testosterone. How quickly does your your class... What's the right word? Sell Not sell out, but uh, get filled up. Uh, at the beginning, uh, they go into it with a bit uh, uh, a bit naive. They mm-hmm. think it's just another gender class and we're just going to look at, uh, at social issues. But then once, once they start to uh, see that there's biological reasons for it, that's when uh, they really uh, spark their interest. No kidding. I, but what I'm saying is people, yeah. your class probably fills up. People, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Pretty quick. Yeah. there's got to be some pretty engaging conversations with those kids. There is, but a lot of it seems like an epiphany that they recognize, oh, this is uh, some of the problems in my relationships, or this is uh, some of the reasons why. Like some of the girls in the class, Mm -hmm. they really bring out, oh, now I need to understand why I can't expect him to be as emotional expressive because he doesn't have the language ability as what I do. And I need to understand that I can't just, as soon as he walks through the door, bring up conflict or different types of topics because Mm -hmm. uh, we're much more compartmentalized that we need to set time aside. 
like many things, if you educate yourself on the biological differences to gender communication, do you find that people are more apt or, or let's say armed to recognize, hey, I'm doing this right now. I understand why I need to stop and, and, and focus on, again, my partner. And I think both. Uh, not necessarily, I mean, your own abilities, but mm-hmm. then it just puts a light on uh, your head when you recognize this in someone else and it gives a rationale a reason why this other person is communicating differently from, uh, from me. So for women, they understand that the male is not necessarily uninterested in the relationship or emotionally removed. It's just language is on the left activated, emotions activated on the right, and ask us to do both at the same time. We can't do it as what she can. And us males need to understand they're not personally attacking us or getting off course when they bring in all these things together at the same time. Language, emotion, memory. This has been a 60-minute conversation, and you've armed me. Because everything you've you've described, and I know Will, just chime in. I mean, when I when I get home, I do compartmentalize, mm-hmm. and actually, I prefer silence. There's 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 times where she wants to engage, and I'm just emotionally turned off. I, so that is now as you you describe it, I recognize what I'm doing now. It just I, I thought that was just my personality, and no, that, we're all like that. Yeah. One last thing, just uh, to touch on if we have time. No, okay. we got time. So uh, intimacy yes. and with uh, yes. men's issues, this, that, and the other, that uh, men think about sex much more so than what uh, females do. Is that true? Yes. Uh, what, what's fem- the ratio? Could, is there a ratio? Uh, like probably one- you could find it, but throughout an uh, ordinary day, it's like times, multiple times, much more so that men think about sex or intimacy or whatever you want to call it, much more so than what females do. And it's much more neurological, brain-activated uh, reward and sensation for uh, males looking at visual stimuli or engaging or whatever else it is for uh, uh, females. And that testosterone for males plays a, a large role in it. So if there's a low interest, sex drive, this there and the other, probably because it's low testosterone levels and a diet can help increase it, eating certain things, and then mm-hmm. exercise as well. But then what needs to be understood is um, it's much more complicated for uh, females and their sexual interest and intimacy, this, that, and the other. So throughout a normal monthly cycle for her, as she gets closer to uh, mm-hmm. evolution, uh, um, her estrogen starts to increase. And when her estrogen increases, um, her sexual interest increases as well. So she focuses in on when her estrogen increases, uh, more intimacy. And then as her estrogen starts to decrease throughout the month. When th- she's in that is when she's ovulating. Yeah, estrogen yes. Is increased. yes. And okay. then post-ovulation. Post-ovulation. Yes. And it starts to down. decrease. Then she focuses in on uh, calorie intake and food intake. So it's either one or the other. High estrogen, more of the uh, sex and intimacy. Low estrogen, more food and calorie intake. So you can see how that's our biological needs to reproduce and to survive. And that kicks in uh, with her within the month. That's relatively observable at times. I've never heard of that before. Um, And then also what we need to understand as males is that it's a much more complicated uh, uh, system for her to be ready for intimacy itself, that everything is much more um, overlapping and connected for her. So if there's stress, if there's anxiety, if she's not comfortable with the relationship or the other person, all those can affect um, her not feeling as ready for the intimacy itself um, as opposed to what males are, which are much more um, ready at the drop of a hat and um, much more easily as so, well. So, again, not trying to... Uh be humorous. Mm-hmm. It's so foreplay is a method of preparing her. Yes, exactly. It does much more for her than it does for, for him. And as we already talked about, that touch increases oxytocin level, mm-hmm. and what that does it reduces her stress and anxiety as well. It makes her feel much more comfortable with the uh, partner as well. And as it goes back to chapter twelve, where you said they have a much higher sensitivity with regards to touch. Mm-hmm. Okay. They even found that, uh, and this indicates, and you probably seen. Uh, evidence of this, that uh, women, that they get much more uh, interested or aroused in maybe a movie or a romance novel, the more that they can't identify with the character themselves. Mm -hmm. So it's that relationship component that plays a major part in it. Um, 
if they don't identify with the character itself, then there's not much going on. It's just good stuff. One last thing on that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's such prevalent in society. Probably everyone knows at least one person um, where uh, later years, after years of marriage, uh, filed for divorce. And over the majority of times that if a person files for divorce over age 50, it's the woman. I, I have heard that. And what's going on with that? Menopause kicks in, mid-40s, late 40s, mm-hmm. early 50s, mm-hmm. major hormonal shifts. Estrogen drops. Estrogen really helps with relationships, relationship interests, relationship communication, intimacy, all those types of things. So for her, usually uh, the optimum level of estrogen is like an inverted U, where it's not too high, not too low. And there's different frames of thoughts out there. I sort of have an opinion on this. Um, So testosterone, the sex drive for males. And then it's been found in studies with extremely high artificial levels of testosterone introduced to females that that uh, increases their sex drive. But it has been found that with all female mammals, across all mammals, estrogen helps to increase uh, the sex drive of uh, females. So it may not necessarily be the testosterone itself that increases the sex drive for uh, females, but maybe it's when the testosterone is converted to estrogen Mm -hmm. that that increases the uh, sex drive for the female themselves. So the the, the layman's explanation behind women after 50 or post-menopause filing Mm -hmm. for divorce is that there no longer is that connection that they have sustained, women have sustained, with, with men. I think so. And so, okay, you remove that component and there's no longer a strong bond yes. between the two. Estrogen drops and all these side effects of estrogen mm-hmm. dropping leads to it as well. And then, you know, it just increases the conflict. And then if you have the demand withdrawal at the same time, yeah. conflict dynamic. It's, it's, it's the double whammy. Because it seems like the empty nester mm-hmm. divorces are becoming mm-hmm. all too common. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So her estrogen drops. Her need for offspring, you know, being in tune with that drops. Uh, the relationship value maybe drops as well because estrogen's related to that as mm-hmm. well. So it's a whole chain effect. That's a bit uh, frightening. Okay. So I'll, I've got my work cut out for me. Um, keep her happy. Wow. Man, this has been uh, educational. Any, any other points you think for the men that are listening? This is, I mean, this is going to turn into a great article. I can tell you that. Uh, let me see if there's, uh, I don't know, uh, but this is somewhat, if you want to introduce some humor, you could, but it won't offend me. Yeah. Um, so biologically, we'll, we'll end with humor. we have two different types of mind frames out there, perhaps. So just starting out that women tend to sniff out their mates. So there's uh, those chemo signals uh, where we all give off our own uh, body odors yes. and they sniff out the genetic uh, code of the other person. They want something that's different, that's genetically different in case you have these uh, um uh, ill types of genetics within you, they're usually recessive traits. So you don't yeah. want two people with similar recessive traits. So maybe with cologne, this or the other, maybe that has something to do with it. But females are pretty much always 100% uh, certain of their offspring. And males are not always 100% certain that what who they're raising, who their woman's pregnant with is their offspring. And there's been numerous studies done with birds and there's a certain percentage of male birds in a nest raising an offspring that's not theirs. So you can see why males tend to be a bit more particular with uh, females, how many, you know, past history, this, that, and the mm-hmm. other. Mm-hmm. And females uh, are more interested in um, what's this person's potential for resource and protection ability. So I think there's some sort of biological uh, innate to that. That's, that's accurate from what I've seen. My experience. So I don't think it's a double standard to what I'm saying. I think there's yeah. biological reasons for it. Yeah. They're always 100% sure that's their offspring in them or not. That's a scary notion for most men and most fathers. I don't, I don't even want to contemplate that. Um, but, yeah, it holds true. And I think, you know, maybe biologically over time, whatever, it's just gotten built upon too much. This, that, and the other, where it's unrealistic, this, that, and the other. You know, from 10 years ago, what were you doing, this, that, and the other? And maybe it just something went haywire biologically, evolutionally within us that's not realistically within what's the last year or, you know, you know, availability of pregnancy or this, that, and the other. Yeah. Where well, 
you know, Dr. Uh, Furlich, I can't thank you enough for coming. Uh, this, I understand why this is a semester long class. I'll, I'll put it to you that way. Um, go check out his book, Sex Talk, How Biological Sex Influences Gender Communication Differences Throughout Life Stages. Uh, I Probably mandatory reading for all men and all women, let's be honest. But, you know, additionally, his first book was about nonverbal communication, which is a tool that you want to sharpen for life because it, it preps you for any conversation or where to stare the converse, conversation based off the, the, the person you're communicating with and, and, and how they're feeling. Um, and again, I've seen leaders do it so well. They can pick up on those cues and match people's styles to, to make them more comfortable and disarm them in and a lot of ways. One of the things with your military background, mm-hmm. uh, I have, in the nonverbal book, I have a whole chapter on deception. And how you could pick up on different cues if someone's being deceptive in the biological things that you just can't fake. That's that's key right there. That is, especially within the context, and you, you you prepped it for the military dealing with other cultures. Is this person being deceptive, or or they tell me the truth? One of the easiest things to do is just go on Amazon and then just type in my last name in the books category: Furlich, F U R L I C H, and then pops up for you. And we'll we'll drop the links as well. Uh, again, this is one going to be one hell of an article. Almost sex talk 101 for uh, for men. Um, again, thank you for making the drive down from uh, commerce. Um, do you have a personal website? No, but my email. If anybody wants to send me a personal email, I invite it. I like hearing. Yeah, that's one of the that's one of the things that uh, I get most gratifying is when people tell me, yes, I read this, and they could personally identify with it and see it in their own lives. So just my first name, S T E P H E N. Period. F-U-R-L-I-C-H at T-A-M-U-C dot E-D-U. And we'll drop that in the article as well. And, and I got to agree with you. The, the greatest impact are the emails you get hey, mm-hmm. saying thank you. It was so educational. Uh, you, you impacted my life. Do you have anyone that reaches out and says, hey, can I audit your class? Can I sit in your class even though they're not I haven't students? had that yet. No? no? Okay. Well, after this, hopefully we can uh, at least <laughs> throw a few people your way. Uh, again, thanks for coming. Uh-huh. And to the audience, uh, this one was educational. And a little bit uh, eye-opening, and some things were probably a little tough to swallow. All right, guys. We'll see you next time.